0: I'm excited to continue in our teaching series here at The Journey. We kicked off last week, we're doing a series that we're calling Eat This Book, a series about the Bible, keeping Scripture central in the life and mission of God's people. Uh, last week, Pastor Tom kicked us off, uh, explored this metaphor a little bit. It's a metaphor from the Bible, the Eat This Book, uh, kind of how we're to really engage with it, really, really approach it. Not from a distance or as detached, passive observers or anything like that, but to really, really take it in. And he introduced us to a, a Hebrew word I thought it was kind of a fun word called haga. The word haga appears in the <laughs> Old Testament it's kind of a, like a lion roaring over its prey or a dog growling over its bone, just so into it. It's kind of how we're to engage with, with God's Word in the Bible, to haga it, to get right up in there, explore every little bit, and to ultimately take it in, to let it feed us, nourish us, sustain us, strengthen us, and, and get deep inside to every part of who we are. Reading Scripture so voraciously that it reaches our soul. Every part of who we are. Haga. Some of you. Hear that image and then think about Scripture, and you're like, "Oh, great! Let's eat. Let's dive in." You know, you found the Bible to be rich, like a feast that has nourished you over time. Uh, others, though, you may have some questions first, especially if the Bible is a little unfamiliar. You you'd see it before you, think, "Ha, oh, God, dig in." Well, what what's in this? What what? Where did it come from? Is it good? Um, we would ask that about food we eat, and certainly we ought to ask it about something that makes claims about ultimate things. You know, good questions. And if you've got questions about uh, diving into the Bible or, or swallowing it whole, uh, you're not the first person. I'd like to open, we're going to look at a few different scriptures today. We're going to start by looking at Luke chapter 1. You can turn there if you have a Bible or if you have one in the pew, that would be on page 723 in most, most of them give you a second to turn there. We're doing a series on the Bible, so if, you know, if we could really follow along, that'd be fabulous. But um, Luke wrote what ended up being the longest of the four Gospels, the accounts, biographies of the life of Jesus. But before he launches into it, before he starts telling the story, he has an introduction, a little preface found in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. So we're going to read that right now. So we see here that Luke is writing to someone by the name of Theophilus. We don't know a whole lot about this guy, but we can surmise a few things. Uh, He was probably someone of some real standing and status. He has a title, Most Excellent Theophilus. It seems like he was an educated, cultured person. It's interesting, just this introduction to Luke's gospel, he writes in actually a pretty elevated Greek, like kind of fancy, eloquent Greek. Most of the rest of the New Testament is written in a really down-to-earth kind of language that regular people could, could easily understand. But just this part here, is, it's kind of the elevated Greek that, that real kind of high-class high types would use, uh, kind of the most noted intellectuals and historians of the time would, would write this way. And so Luke's writing to people like that, and he introduces himself that way. And as educated, cultured people, Theophilus and those in his circles, who might be reading this with him, they would have some questions luke where did you get your information what are your sources is what you're telling us really reliable is it really trustworthy and they'd have uh other reasons to ask that beyond their own intellect but for anyone in the first century roman world really becoming a christian and and following christ came at real personal cost and for someone with status and standing and wealth, would stand to have a lot, of lo- a lot to lose by following Christ. And so you'd really want to know well, is this stuff I've heard really reliable? Is it sound? Uh, and can I bet my life on it? And Luke wants him to know yeah, you can, you can. But he starts by taking his questions very seriously. He takes his questions seriously. He doesn't say, Oh, Theophilus, would you just believe? Just trust. Take our word for it. Come on, have some faith. Oh, He takes pains to, to labor, to really investigate, and to do and to diligence, and to cite his sources, and to let him know, I've, really, I've carefully investigated this, I've talked to the people who are there, and, and I'm, I've worked really hard at what I'm doing here. He takes his questions seriously and honors them. Um, but at the same time, it's so that Theophilus doesn't get stuck in the questions, and those who like him don't get stuck in the questions and miss out on the feast that is life with God because they're not sure they can trust it. He wants them to know. I want you to know the certainty of the things you've been taught so that, yeah, you can go all in and you can bet it all on Jesus and you can't enter into life with him. You don't have to worry. It's sound. And so if you or, or those you know have Questions about the reliability, the trustworthiness of the Bible, they're, they're good questions, they're important questions. And I want you to know they're worth taking seriously, and I hope that we're taking them seriously here. They're good questions, uh, and you'd want to know, because you know, if the, if the Bible is not reliable, then what we believe about Jesus really doesn't mean anything at all. But if it is reliable, then what we believe about Jesus is of ultimate importance. So you wanna ask and you wanna know. Now I can't provide you this certainty in, in a short message this morning, but I do wanna suggest that the Bible really is trustworthy. We really can trust what it says about God. And, and we'll unpack this in a few ways. I wanna talk about three ways in which the, the Bible can be trusted. I think we can trust the Bible historically, we can trust the Bible culturally, and we can trust the Bible personally historically, culturally, and personally. So first, that we can trust the Bible historically. This is where you know, a number of arguments about the reliability of Scripture come in. You know, wasn't, wasn't the Bible just full of myths or legends? Um, how do we know that it's, that it's authentic, that it's, that it's real? I mean, Jesus lived a really long time ago, so how, does, how do we know that what we have here actually reflects the real Jesus, that it wasn't altered in some way or it wasn't made up later by some people in power to kind of advance an agenda or something like that? How do we know we can really trust this, rely on this? Again, good, good questions. I want to just suggest three things, three ways that we can... Um, trust the historicity, and we're going to talk about the Gospels specifically. So first, the Gospels were, were actually written far too early to be counterfeit. They are written far too early to be counterfeit. Luke here, he appeals to the, the testimony of eyewitnesses, and his Gospel was written sometime around in the 70s A.D., and it wasn't the first one written, but it was still written within the time span, the lifespan of people who were actually around during the events that he records and who could have easily disproven uh, things that he's talking about. The Apostle Paul, elsewhere in the the book of 1 Corinthians, he refers to Jesus appearing to 500 of the brothers and sisters, many of whom are still alive, as if to say, you know, the people who are around for this are still around. You you can ask them. Uh, But the New Testament really was written largely within the lifespan of people who, who were around for the events recorded. So quite close to the actual events and not much, much later, to figure out what happened. There's also a, a chart I want to show you here, hopefully not overwhelming. This may be way more information than, than you need, but to illustrate, this is just kind of a list of a, a number of different widely regarded works of ancient literature that are held up and esteemed in Western civilization, New Testament, being one of them alongside others, and it's kind of listed here when, when the things were originally written. And then when is the earliest copy that we actually have, where does that date from, and how many copies do we have? So, for example, Homer's Iliad was written originally around 900 B.C. The earliest copy that is in possession of people was dated from around 400 B.C. So 500 years passed by, so can can you know that the words we have are the, the actual ones that Homer actually wrote down? I don't know. No one ever really seems to question that, um, although a lot of time went by. You can see the, the gap, the time span for the New Testament is, is much, much tighter than really any of these, these other things, and so the likelihood that things altered greatly and significantly over time from the original is a lot less likely. And there are an incredible number of manuscripts from New Testament books that are available. There was a time hundreds of years ago when the most recent copies dated to, like, the fourth century, and so it was easy to imagine, oh, was that just something that people made up later? But more recently, a lot of manuscripts have been found that are much, much older than that, and there are so many of them, and they're all in agreement with one another and with what we have here handed down. So the likelihood that things were kind of doctored and altered over time from the original is not much of a case, really. And the point being, you know, if we trust these other ancient works um, from an academic standpoint, the, the New Testament actually holds up as well or better from an academic literary standpoint than many of these things. And it should. And it matters that it does. Now, at the end of the day, if I found out that Homer didn't actually write the Iliad, still a really great story. It doesn't affect my enjoyment of it. Or if I found out later that that Caesar kind of fabricated some stories of battles in the Gallic Wars, what do I care? I haven't actually based major life decisions on any of those works, but I have on the New Testament, and I've thrust my hope and my trust and my future into believing that what it says is true. So, in a way, I really want to know that it is reliable, I want to know that it is sound, and have found it to be so. Uh, And one of these reasons is is it's written, really, quite early to be a fabrication. second thing, the historicity, is that the Gospels really are, in many ways, too counterproductive to be fabricated. If they were a work of propaganda to try to kind of sell people back then on an idea, on a figure, on on a god, there's a lot within the Gospels themselves that kind of work against it, that aren't all that productive. Um, we see Jesus struggle in the Gospels. We see him uh, strain. We see him the night before he went to the cross, kind of ask if there's a way out. Um, if you were to kind of fabricate a, a, a bulletproof deity uh, to impress people by, you probably wouldn't include that. All four Gospel accounts are, are kind of unanimous and consistent in claiming that the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women written at a time when the testimony of women was not valid in court, not, not recognized as something to be listened to. And so if you trying to kind of make up some sources like, oh, so-and-so said that this is true, well, this is not the way that you would go. And the apostles, kind of the pillars of the early church, uh, some of the people who wrote parts of the New Testament, in the Gospels they often come across as complete idiots. They're like really dense, slow to learn, they bicker and argue, they're petty, they have prejudices that, that don't go away overnight. Um, so all of this stuff, the, I think the most sound reason why it's all included is because that's what happened. Not because of propaganda, not because of, well, let, if we were to really make up a story to sell people, let's do it this way. You wouldn't do it this way. It's most likely that, well, this is honestly what happened, and so that's, that's been recorded. So. Too close, too early to be uh, made up, too counterproductive to be fabricated, and finally the Gospels are, are too detailed to be legend. It's kind of an easy thing to say, oh, isn't, the, isn't the Bible just full of legends, myths? Well, if you've actually read legends and how they sound, they don't really sound at all like how the Gospels are written. And one of the ways is the Gospels are incredibly detailed. There's details in the story that frankly seem like extra, like, like what does it even matter? And we're used to that, as 21st century people. If you've ever read a novel, they're written very detailed. Lots of description of the characters, of the setting, the places, the people. We get a lot of detail, we're used to that. But at the time the New Testament was written, nobody, nobody really wrote like that. That's a much later genre, and, and myths and legends didn't look like that at all. It's pretty unique. Now, C.S. Lewis, who became one of the 20th century's most vocal defenders and arguers for Christian faith, actually came to faith pretty later in life, and he had been an atheist, and he was a professor of ancient literature. And the thing that turned him from atheism to, to being really sold out for Christianity was analyzing the New Testament alongside other ancient literature. And this is one thing he wrote. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage of what actually happened, or else some unknown writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. If it is untrue, then it must be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. He's a professor, so I guess he can be a little snarky. Um, The point being, uh, an intellectual professor who who studied ancient literature realizing, oh, this actually stands, and I think the Gospels really do. From a literary academic standpoint, they're on solid ground, on solid footing. It's not a a bulletproof thing, but uh, you don't have to check reason at the door and, and just exhibit blind faith to say that the Gospels are trustworthy, they really do hold up. And we are just talking about the Gospels, but that's kind of a big deal. They are at the heart of what the whole of the Bible is. And the Gospels themselves assume the reliability of the whole Old Testament as we have it as well. So I think we can trust the Bible historically. Second, we can trust the Bible culturally. We can trust the Bible culturally this is another vein of, of uh, arguments against the reliability of the Bible. Is Well, it was, it's a product of a, a different culture, a really long time ago, cultures that are, are quite removed from our own. And honestly, we can easily be bothered by some of the social and moral implications of the, of the Bible. It's, they seem dated, maybe even offensive to modern ways of thinking. And any of us who, who dive into the Bible, who really eat this book, are going to come up against things that are troublesome culturally for us. But I just want to suggest three things to consider when, when you come up against a passage like that. One, consider that it, it may not be teaching what you think. It may not actually teach what you think. Here's an example. So in the Old Testament, the, many of the heroes of faith, the pillars of the people of God, they, they display some horrible behavior. And a common theme in many of the the sort of heroes of the Old Testament, is uh, polygamy. And polygamy with kind of a misogynistic overtones. They, they took multiple wives for themselves. And you read that and you think, oh my gosh, like that, that is offensive. And I've heard people say, oh, I could never trust a book that's just so patriarchal and supports things like that, and I understand. But think about what is it actually teaching, though? The Bible it has, devotes a lot of space to that sort of behavior, describes it, but it's important to know the difference between what's descriptive and what's prescriptive in the Bible. Where, where is the Bible just describing life honestly and brutally as it is, life in a fallen world, and what is it prescribing as life that God intends and that God calls us to live? In the case of polygamy, the Bible is brutally descriptive uh, of this aspect of life in a fallen world, but in no way does it condone it. Or promote it. Every time you see it happen, it actually turns out pretty badly. It's in no way an endorsement of this as a as a way. And if you look at the whole of the narrative of Scripture, you see God's intent in the beginning: a man should leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, singular; they become one flesh. Not that a man take multiple wives to himself. And it's very clear when you see sin enter the picture in the narrative that this is a direct fallout of sin and evil entering into the world. And, and looking at the New Testament community of people being redeemed by Jesus, there's, there's not a trace of this kind of misogyny anywhere. And we've learned in our summer teaching series just how much Jesus elevated women. So there's a lot of horrible behavior described, but what's prescribed. Just, just note, when you come across something hard, it may not be teaching what you think. Uh, second thing to consider when we come across tough stuff culturally is that our cultural blinders may be confusing us. It's easy to be confused as 21st century people living where we do when we read a, a text that is a product of a different time and place with metaphors that perhaps we might hear and think one thing, but the author meant something else. We all have cultural blinders through which we see the world. We have deeply ingrained Ideas, habits of thinking, ways that we just assume stuff about the world, maybe that we're not even aware of, but it affects how we see things. And sometimes they get in the way of us seeing what's really there. That's what makes them blinders. And all cultures have them. You know, you're probably embarrassed by some things that your great-grandparents thought, oh, people think that way. But if you ever have great-grandchildren, you can be assured that they're going to be very embarrassed by some things that you think as well. And we don't know what those things are, though, because, well, we're blind to them. That's what makes them blinders. But every culture has them. And it might be hard for us, you know, approaching a text that's a product of cultures long ago, but even the cultures the Bible was written in had cultural blinders that made it hard to see what was going on. I want to turn to another passage, uh, our second scripture. This is in the book of 1 Corinthians, page 807, if you're using a pew Bible, most of them anyway give you a moment to turn there and we will pick up in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 22. <clears throat> and Paul's talking about how the actual cultures that the Bible sprang out of have a hard time receiving its message. Verse 22, it says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So, there are a lot fewer hurdles for people who are first century Jewish people or first century Greeks to get over and understanding some of what was going on here in the New Testament. But still, cultural blinders made it hard for a lot of people then to accept the message of the Bible. The message of Christ crucified, which is really the heart of it, the heart of the Bible's message, Jesus crucified and what that means. Was very, people knew what a cross was better than we do now. They, they'd seen them. But this was hard because they had deeply ingrained ideas of what God should be like. And this didn't fit. The average first century Jew had a picture of God as a a mighty, triumphant, militaristic figure coming to squelch their enemies, to vindicate the people of God, to come in a mighty, triumphant way with signs and power. And to see Christ crucified, God actually tortured and put to death at the hands of their violent oppressors in Rome. That was offensive to them in their idea of what God should be like. A stumbling block means it is offensive. They took offense to the idea. And Greeks, who with, with deep uh, centuries of sound learning and philosophy, with logic and reason and rhetoric that, that was so smooth and so, so brilliant, had ideas of what gods ought to be like. This didn't fit it either. This just didn't make any sense. God coming as a man, God showing strength and power through weakness and, and sacrifice. That just seemed like foolishness. This doesn't make any sense. So it's dismissed easily as either offensive or foolishness, even to the very cultures that the Bible springs out of. I mean, it was written in their languages, using all their metaphors, and and right there embedded in their culture. And still, cultural blinders kept from understanding. Um, And who are we to think that we don't have our own cultural blinders that keep us from understanding what's in here sometimes? Christ crucified continues to challenge a lot of our ideas of what God ought to be like, we all have them. We all have thoughts deeply ingrained of what we think God should be like. If God was really good, he'd be like this. He'd say things like this. He wouldn't do things like that. We have those ideas. And then when we come across a God revealed, uh, we, those blinders can keep us from seeing God who actually is. Because the question isn't, what do we hope God is like? Does this match up? But like, who, who is God? And we hope our cultural blinders don't get in the way of, of seeing that. We all have them. And the Bible challenges each and every one of them. It's one of the things I find most impressive about the Bible, is it can challenge every culture's blind spots, and challenge every culture's idols, every culture's shortcomings and propensities towards wickedness. We all have different ones, and the Bible, the same message, can challenge all of them at the same time. Here we see Jews and Greeks, two entirely different cultures, and the same message challenges both of them at once. And tears down their blinders and the things that would keep them from knowing God. I think that's really impressive that the Bible can do that across any any culture. Really, if we're honest, it will come up against the things we hold dear and remove our blinders. So we can trust the Bible culturally. Uh, it might not teach what you think. Might not. We might have cultural blinders. Then finally, just consider that uh, our own cultural bias, our own cultural assumptions, might be biased. We all bring assumptions to any conversation and to any text that we read. And naturally, we think our ways are better. We all have biases. You know, if you disagree with somebody else about something, well, naturally, you're going to think, well, you're right. And they're wrong. Like my, we have a bias towards that. And we bring our own biases to the Bible as well. Now, most cultures throughout world history have had a strong bias in favor of tradition in favor of the ancients, the, the wisdom of the elders, you know, kind of the older the better, and the, the more traditional the better, and they've been very skeptical towards things that are new or innovative or young. And the Bible has challenged a lot of traditions across cultures and time uh, for many centuries. And our culture is kind of the opposite of that, though. Generally speaking, we have a bias against what's old, against what's traditional, against what's ancient, and we tend to favor the new, the innovative, and the now. Um, For those of you who are baby boomers, you may remember when you were younger, there was a popular saying, don't trust anyone over 30. I don't know if any of you remember that, but look at you now. Well past 30, I dare say, and probably not as dumb as you used to think people were who were your age. But it's not just a generational thing. Western civilization as a whole has been steeped in this for for centuries, a narrative of continual human progress, always improving, always progressing, and always getting better. And it's a powerful narrative that gives us, it's just deeply embedded. We might not even be aware of how much we're biased towards thinking that way. Um, And it is a powerful narrative because in many ways it's true. We do know a lot of things that ancient people didn't know especially when it comes to science and understanding how the world is made up, how it works. We know the Earth isn't flat. When it comes to technology and the things we can do, when it comes to medicine, you know, it's definitely a better idea before surgery to have anesthesia than to drink a bottle of whiskey, Um, but not when it comes to everything. We know a lot of things ancient people don't know, but listen, that's a bias we can take with us. It doesn't apply to everything. And just because we know a few things that ancient people didn't know, it definitely does not make us better people than they are, than they were. When it comes to virtue, when it comes to character, when it comes to the nature of the human heart, our, our level of inherent goodness and propensity towards evil, I think actually we're all pretty much on equal footing across time. And when it comes to the remedy for that, the diagnosis of all that. and When it comes to our, our innate nature, our propensity towards selfishness, and what character and virtue looks like, I think those of us now have some of the most to learn from people who lived a long time ago. So we just need to make sure we don't carry our biases towards, towards everything. And a lot of times we, we treat the Bible like the classic out-of-touch old man. You know, we kind of like having him around or we, we let him stay around because he's kind and he had, a, he had an important life you know, back then, but we really hope he doesn't say that much because we're kind of embarrassed and he's, he's really out of step. But be careful that that's not just a, a bias that we, that we bring to the text. So three things to consider when we come up against culturally tough stuff. It might not teach what we think. We might have cultural blinders and we might have biases we take towards it. Now, this doesn't neatly resolve everything that we find difficult about the Bible. I know that. There's still things I find difficult about the Bible, too. But this is a call for at least a little humility uh, before we dismiss and sit as judge and jury over it and decide for ourselves what it should say, that we've at least made sure we see what it's saying and that we've checked our own blinders and our own biases as we do. So. We've talked about how the Bible can be trusted historically, how it can be trusted culturally. But finally, we need to know that the Bible can be trusted personally as well. It's a great piece of literature, and it's a very sound one, but that's not all it is. It holds up intellectually, but encountering the Bible is ultimately not just an intellectual exercise. It doesn't leave our intellect at the door, but it goes beyond it. I'll to look at one last passage from the Gospel of Luke, this one from the end, the final chapter of Luke. This will be on 7:49 in most of the Pew Bibles. One last place that we'll touch down. Luke chapter 24, we're going to pick up in verse 25. At this point, Jesus has been walking with a couple of early disciples of his who had followed him around, who were very confused, though, by the events of his death and resurrection, and Jesus walking with them to help them make sense of what was going on and helping them make sense of the scriptures that they knew and loved. In verse 25, he says this. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then skipping down, verse 32, and all these disciples are kind of unpacking this encounter they've had with Jesus, and they say, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while well, he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What we see here is as the scriptures are being opened to these disciples, what they have is a personal encounter with Jesus not just more knowledge or more understanding, although that undergirds it, but they have a personal encounter with Jesus that changes them forever. And it happens as he opens the scriptures to them. But the point is not just to to worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We sang earlier, I'll forever worship Christ. Worship Christ. Although many Christians kind of come dangerously close to worshiping the Father or the Son and the Holy Scriptures, as if the Bible itself is God. It's, it's not. It points to him. It points reliably to who God is. It shows us who he is, that ultimately we'd love God, surrender to God, worship Jesus, and put our ultimate trust in him. And it all points to him. That's what he says. Beginning with Moses, all the prophets, he explained to him what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All the scriptures, what they do ultimately is point to Jesus Point us to Jesus. Show us Jesus. Draw us to Jesus. Whatever it is, just the accounts here in the Gospels of of his life, his teaching, his words, we get to to see them, we get to hear them, know who Jesus is. What comes later helps us interpret those events and, and understand how to live in light of them. In Revelation, we see the future, the coming of Jesus and life forever with him. But before all that, it all points to Jesus as we see God's character on display, in the Old Testament, we see the character of a God who's most known and profoundly encountered in Jesus. As we see mighty acts of saving and delivering and rescuing and healing, we see things pointing forward to the ultimate deliverance and, and saving that's found in Jesus. And as we see on the pages of the Old Testament, brutal accounts of life in a fallen world, we're confronted head on with our deep need for Jesus. The whole thing points to him, though, and that is the end result. Again, it's not checking our intellect at the door, but uh, it's not merely that. It's to engage our hearts in personal encounter with Jesus. Pastor Tom mentioned last week a type of heartburn that we might get as we eat this book. That some of it might taste sweet, but as it goes down, as it challenges us, as it changes us, as it comes up against our ways of thinking and being, that we get a sort of heartburn as we consume Scripture. Well, here's another kind of heartburn in verse 32. We're not our hearts burning within us. Well, he talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us. It's understanding at the deepest level, not just intellectually, but uh, that causes our hearts to burn, that reaches deep down into our souls, our spirits, and every part of who we are. Resonates as true in a way that goes beyond what we can explain. I read this week about a, an old English minister named Dick Lucas who read an essay from a skeptic who said, oh, I'd love to believe in Christianity, but what I, what I need, though, is, is a watertight argument. Proof without a single hole and no escaping. Then I could believe. And what Dick Lucas said in response was, I don't know if God has provided that for us. You may disagree, but what God has provided is a watertight person with no holes in him from whom there is no escaping. Jesus is the one we can ultimately trust with our lives, with everything about who we are, to give ourselves to completely the Bible, it points us to him. We can trust that it points in helpfully, but our ultimate trust, our ultimate allegiance is to the Jesus to whom it points. And the hope of eating this book is to personally encounter him who is completely trustworthy, who will never forsake us, and who our lives ultimately belong to. Let me pray for us. So Lord, I do pray that as we wrestle with these things, we consider these things, that ultimately you lead us to a place of a true encounter with you, of really knowing you. To walk with us through our questions, walk with us through what's difficult when we come to your word. Walk with us like you did with those early disciples in a way that you, you open it up to us, Lord. And where we need a little more faith, a little more trust, a little more confidence. I pray you'd give it to us each in the way that we can hear and understand and really rely on. That we could dive deeper and deeper into this book. That we would have a taste, maybe, if it's unfamiliar. Or we would dive deeper. We would be willing to swallow it, despite how it might go down. But ultimately, Lord, would you touch our hearts and our minds Lead us into life where we know you deeply and intimately. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, what you've revealed to us, and that you make yourself known. We want to know you, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.